Yeah, how 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 was Groundhog Day? I didn't I didn't make it. I, was I know. Working. It's at the old. I was so sorry you couldn't come. It was fabulous. I Aww. really. I think it's at the old bit. They brought it back after. I was amazed how long ago it opened. I think in 2016 it opened. The first oh, at time. the old Vic? Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and then it went to Broadway and it had this sort of slightly disastrous run on Broadway where Andy Carl, who is the star and who is, it's wonderful to see Andy Carl on the stage because it is this somebody who's so completely at ease with being a comic musical actor. He's just so wonderful. Yeah, he's yeah. proper Broadway. And he's thrilling. And um, and I love Groundhog Day. Oh, so, yes. So it had a terrible run on Broadway because he got injured. And he oh, got yeah. injured in one of the previews. And I think that sort of sort of messed everything up. So he was always acting with, um, I think he hurt his leg. So he was acting with a stick. Oh, no. And um, it didn't run for as long as they hoped. And a tour was cancelled. So it is utterly brilliant that they have now brought it and back. And with him. With him, amazing, and um, it's I, you know, Tim Minchin has written it, and I think it's just so clever. The lyrics are so clever, yeah, and there's such a kind of joy in seeing a story that you like very much transposed to a musical setting. Yes, yes, and um, wittily and funnily, but also because Groundhog Day is essentially a story about a man who learns to be human. Yeah. Um, it, it it feels kind of um, uplifting in yeah, the best yeah. possible way because it's all about niceness. It's, you know, he escapes the terrible cycle of repetition yeah. by being a nicer man. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, what has happened on stage, uh, as opposed to the film with Bill Murray, is that it has got a kind of clarity in, in that, purpose right so actually Andy Carl's Phil Connors this horrible weatherman who's cynical about the whole world yeah he's beautifully defined on stage and he really isn't very nice and he goes on not being very nice for an incredibly long time so the kind of the slow there's a sense in which the thawing of his behavior and the realization that perhaps it's him who can change things Right. It's very explicit and I think really well done. Yeah. Plus, have you ever seen it at all? You didn't see it first time round? No, I didn't. I mean, I love the film. We obsessed over the film for years and I think, I mean, I love everything that Bill Murray does. And I think the comedy of it, I mean, we're very forgiving of cruelty when it's funny, yeah. you know, and and so and because he does it with, with a sort of charm that you forgive things... It's it's very palatable the whole thing and it's just very very well written. It is well written and Danny Rubin has written the the book for the right. musical as well and and that really helps. I, I discovered an extraordinary thing about Groundhog Day when I was reading up to write my review, <laughs> is that when they originally made the film, Har- Harold Ramis, who was the co-writer, right, who'd written Ghostbusters and things and worked with Murray before, he was obsessed with the idea that you had to explain why Phil Connors suddenly keeps waking up on the same day over and over again. Yeah. And he wanted there to be some kind of explanation. Right. Of that, you know, like a curse or some kind of twist that would reveal it. And Rubin fought very hard not to reveal it. And now you just can't imagine it with a kind of proper plot about yes, why yes. it happened. And um, 
Yeah, I just thought it was amazing because it wouldn't be the same film and it wouldn't be the same musical if there was sort of some sort of supernatural element that was explained at the end. Did they it. decide? Do you think they decided what it was but chose not to include it or never felt no, they had well, to make Ruby the Well, Ruby just never he never wanted to do it because his his whole conceit was the kind of the philosophical one about yes, what, yes. what would happen if you were trapped in the same loop of time over and over again and would you make different decisions? And he wasn't really very interested in the plot-driven side yes. of it. And so he, I think he, he just never really resolved it and then they shot the film as it was and um, and they, yeah, so, and, suspe- so it's got a mystery about it. But the suspension sense. of disbelief, if it's very clear in its intent... You don't necessarily. I mean, you think about the film Sliding Doors. Yes. You know what that is. We, you know, yeah, it's, again, it's a, a moment. Which yeah, the colloquialism exists choice. for a reason because there are those momentary things. I remember years ago somebody explaining deja vu neurologically that actually the, the brain does a slight hiccup, right. and in that millisecond between the first intake of information, the the image goes into your memory bank. So even though it's like less than a split second later the first image is already a memory right so it is a literal deja vu because it is a memory but the memory has only just been consumed yeah and i love that you know and they talk about that certain things that happen to you in your life don't get consumed properly which is why they feel so raw when you're reminded of them and i think the way that that works is so familiar to us when when you don't deal with things directly or things do keep or repeating themselves that's such a human experience that the the concept that you know the conceit of, of the film is is familiar enough that we don't need as you say we don't need, the, don't need an explanation that, that yeah, the, yeah to be solved yeah and it is so funny i mean that you know you get this long sequence where he keeps trying to chat up his producer and, yeah and he does it over and over again so he learns more and more about her yes and i mean that, oh, i love I mean, that it's, i do it's have incredibly to funny with the sequence anyhow it's a good moment i think to say hello hello in our own <laughs> of the next episode um, of As the Actor Said to the Critic with me, the critic, Sarah Crompton. And me, Nancy Carroll, the actress. We thought this week Nancy's going to tell us about an exhibition she is organising, but also we just thought it'd be quite nice to talk about some of our favourite things, some of the stuff we've been up to yeah. and that we like doing. Um, and the other thing I've seen this week, so I've had a musical week. I, I love musicals. Yeah, which is me good. too. And I have had a very musical week because not only have I seen Groundhog Day at the Old Vic, but I've also seen 42nd Street, <gasps> oh. <laughs> which has come back to Sadler's Wells for a month and which is, yeah, heaven. Really. Is it? I love yeah. it. It's such a great show. And um, yeah, just it's the ultimate sort of back. Well, is it going on musical. tour from there? Um, I it's I think it's it's oh god I should know that I I think it is right I think it's also might have been on tour and then going out is it, wait is it open it opened at the Leicester it, Curve didn't it it did open at the Leicester Curve yeah and it's come in from there and directed by Jonathan Church yeah and um, is just a joy really it's 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 got actually one of its many qualities is Julian Marsh who is the impresario who is meant to be a, a genius at creating musicals. Right. And normally he's played by an actor. When I first saw it, was he was played by James Lawrenson. Oh, okay. And so the, the suspension of disbelief you have to do with that is that this man can dance. Right. And in this instance, it's played by Adam Garcia, 
Oh. Who really can dance. Yes, well, of course. And there's suddenly this wonderful moment at the end where he kind of breaks into a tap dance. Yeah. And um, you, you just, it's lovely because yeah, you suddenly yeah. just think how thrilling it is. And and it's, it's again, it's just an interesting construct that, it, you know, they, it's made as a backstage musical with all these great songs. And it's joy comes from um, the tap dancing and the... The sort of glory of seeing, you know, a unis a chorus in unison moving across the stage. Oh my god, there is nothing like it. I mean, that sort of multiple tap at the same time that is such a almighty drum on a stage, and then it sort of hits you viscerally. It's so exciting. It's thrilling. Joe did um, years and years ago. uh, I always get it confused with the Canary Islands. Fuente Vujuna. Yes. Fuente yes. Vujuna. Because it's Fuente Ventura. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Never be a travel agent. So at the end of the play, they were all wearing these traditional Spanish clogs. And as they sort of reconvened for the curtain call, they did this clog dance. And Joe said it was the most extraordinary noise to have the entire company in clogs on a hard floor doing this. And they had this wonderful um, moment where they toured it to Spain, to the town um, about which the play had been written, about this historical event, uh, the details of which I can't remember. Um, But, and they were a little bit worried because it was sort of Coles to Newcastle and, you know, were they going to be offended by, you know, having their story told by a bunch of Brits? But they stood... Uh, there was a standing ovation, and they responded with um, the uh, United clapping in the, in the same rhythm. <gasps> so so that they had done this clogging, duh, 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 and then all of the audience did. Oh, how and it, but in in a huge sorry, not very good clapping. Um, <laughs> uh, it, all around them in this sort of uh, small yeah. round theatre in in this town, and Joe said it was the most extraordinary thing. But it is that completely united sound like yeah. the 42nd street yeah. tap dance that sort of whacks you in the chest it's so moving yeah and yes and the percussive quality of it and the idea that everybody's doing the same thing at the same time and what's interesting to me about this production of 42nd street is that um the choreography by bill Dima. yeah he hasn't got usually have ranks and ranks and ranks of dancers coming on yeah for, yeah for the for the tapping like um the numbers like we're in the money and he hasn't it's a smaller production because it's built to tour and it's built to be quite humane and human I I think it's got it's lovely production yeah and but he the inventiveness so he not only gets them in unison but he gets them in unison sort of doing flicks and shuffles and little kind of quite intricate things as well as just the kind of absolute beat and, and 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 I think it was interesting we were talking in the interval I met some friends and we were talking about our favourite musical of that type that's got, you know, that in a sense is um, uplifting. Yeah, yeah. And because uh, this was very much meant, you know, the, the film is about a, a depression era. And the yeah. idea is that, you know, song and dance brings hope. You know, Peggy, the chorus girl, can go out a youngster and come back a star. But the audience can also have their spirits raised in the midst of a depression. Yes. 
by it. So, and, and then I think musicals do have that quality. It's the flash mob mentality as well, isn't it? You see the, I mean, I've watched some various points, like, you know, around COVID, we went through a period watching YouTube videos of flash mobs in Grand Central Station in New York and stuff with the kids, just because it was there was something really cathartic and healing about watching that togetherness. Yeah. Um, but and it's the same, I think, a little bit in um, is it nicely nicely who sings "Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat" oh, yeah. in Guys and Dolls, and it starts as the you know the Salvation Army coming and encouraging them to sort of talk about their sins and all the rest of it. But that thing of one person speaking and then two or three people speaking that by the end of the number, the whole yeah. company are in unison, yeah. and the noise level and that togetherness and that growing of something, which again is. Lots of composers use it in big musical numbers, but every single time, it's just glorious, and it and it it must be a formula in a way that people use, but you, but it creeps up on you. Yeah. That's the beauty of it, and the big numbers like that are just I just I just love them, and they always make me cry. But it because it's something about it. It, it takes over your sort of intercostal muscles. You know, yeah, it's like the yeah. music is sort of it's, vibrating. It's liberating in, yeah, a, in a yeah. kind of completely different way. It's interesting, Guys and Dolls. We did, uh, uh, my group, my conversational group, agree that Guys and Dolls probably is the great musical. It's slightly later, you know, but it, it is the great musical of the sort of... Um, uh, the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Just kind of a magical show that's so witty and so full of life. Yeah. And, you know, great songs, great dance routines. Um, the current um, brilliant production, The Bridge, is choreographed by Arlene Phillips, who yeah. has worked wonders in tiny, tiny spaces. Yes. Because they they it, it's staged in the round, so they're on tiny platforms. And so she can't have them spread across the stage. She has to make everything very um, intimate and precise oh, and it's really good yeah it's I really... I mean it is my favorite musical of all time and I and I I just love it. I haven't yet seen the one at the bridge it's on my list I've been sort of it's way late for a bit, I, I know I know which is glorious and I I, I it is that thing that the it, it, it there's never a bum note in that in that show I just think you know any musical where you remember every single number it's just extraordinary. You think the number of musicals that have been written over the years and they've put to even really good ones have got like three or four good, good songs, you know, yeah. but not every single one, yeah. is, you know, that you remember. But Guys and yeah, Dolls, it's just every, every single, single song. song. It's just I, It's gorgeous. funny because I, I watching this version, I uh, I realised that I'd forgot, I had forgotten one, which is Marry the Man Today. Yeah. Which, you know, is such a great song and yeah, it conveys yeah. so much. Um, but in such again a tight construction, really, as a song. I mean, yeah. it's a really fierce song. But having that, that too, that sort of, and I, as I understand it, I think Nick Heitner has really pushed the sort of female emancipation of his characters, which is quite a new thing. Yeah. That although they are still obsessed with marrying their husbands and you know the being under the influence of booze, that then I think that was his concern was that Sarah Brown didn't appear to be weakened in that situation yeah. under the influence of sort of cocktails yeah, yeah. and that that's why she allowed herself to sort of fall into his yeah. um, clutches. He's very much brought that into the 21st century um, in that way. But e even though you could accuse it of needing to have that updating, 
they are brilliantly strong personalities. Yeah, yeah. And I think of also there's a big number like that in City of Angels, isn't there? Yes. Um, where you have the, the it's secretary. It's show I don't know very well, yeah. Well, it's one of those ones, I mean, I did it at university, but it was, it again, It, it there are musicals that for whatever reason uh, receive critical acclaim, but don't necessarily gather an audience quick enough to keep them in the theatre, which is a great, great shame. I mean, I think City of Angels is... is hopefully will be discovered later yeah you know because it's got such a great number it is quite a complex show to put on they were going to revive it at the Donmar then it got scuppered by covid yeah they did it at the Donmar and then they brought it into the Garrick right and then that got scuppered by covid they only did a few previews and I think they tried to bring it back maybe they did bring it back for a bit no I'd like to see it they did bring it back didn't they it's funny how you can miss a show City of Angels a show I've kept missing and want to see yeah Um, my boss at What's On Stage has just been over to Broadway for the Tonys and has seen the revival of Parade well I've never seen that oh did you not see it with Bertie I've not seen (gasps) it I mean again people say it's you know it's his favourite show I mean he he adores it and apparently the Broadway production which won um, a Tony is yeah it's, it's an extraordinary I mean I saw it at Bertie Carvel at the, at the Donmar and I can remember when I was doing Man and Mode at the National and quite a few of the dancers in it were going up for it at the time and I was like what is it what a strange concept for a musical and um, but then I went to see it and was completely blown away by it because I think similarly like when you're talking about Groundhog Day and also 42nd Street is that sort of the visceral percussive noise that you can make on stage can be either joyous or aggressive. Yeah. So you, if you push it towards aggression, the idea of telling that story of a man ousted and blamed and scapegoated in the way that the, the story of Parade does, it's, it's a, a Jewish factory owner who's a, uh, wrongly accused of rape and then is ousted by his own community. So it becomes a story of this anti-Semitic community mm. and, and um, you know, just about the nature of, of, of how people can turn against people wrongly. And, you know, it's a, it's a story we've seen again and again, but you can't imagine it working with music. Yeah. No. I, I mean, But somehow yeah. it does because it's, it's feral. It's us and our most animal yeah. when we decide that somebody isn't in our tribe. Mm. And what that does to people, both in the tribe and and the one that's been, you know, ousted, is is so visceral that actually, with music behind it, it becomes something quite extraordinary. Tony was just very yes. off slightly. Tony was very good for friends of the pod in the yeah. sense that um, uh, Patrick Marber for Leopoldstadt, brilliant. Leopold. Congratulations. Uh, one best director and uh, Leopoldstadt one best Leopoldstadt. Yeah, have I said and, it wrong? No, I've said it wrong. Oh. And Leopoldstadt <laughs> <laughs> one best play, which means that um, Tom Stoppard has done this astonishing thing, which I think we ought to just pay. Um, uh, homage rem- homage homage is the right word homage to because he has now won the best play Tony in five decades wow so he's won it for Rosencrantz and Guildstone I'm going to get stuck here he won it for Rosencrantz and Guildstone in the 60s yeah then for Arcadia in the 80s yeah most of Utopia in the 90s um, rock and roll no 
He's won five. He hasn't won it every decade. And he and now he's at this for Leopold but it's five separate decades. That's extraordinary. Where he has won a best play. Um, Travis just won it for. Oh, right. It wasn't rock and roll. Did he not rent wing? No, for I don't think he won for rock and roll. But okay. it is amazing that we can be doubtful of that. And that yeah. is just a, an astonishing run of writing and the variety of those yeah, plays yeah, yeah. from the sort of sort of tragedy of Leopoldstadt and yes. that sense of a community, you know, sort of doomed. Yeah. Um, to, you know, Arcadia, which I think would be one of my favourite plays yeah. ever. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Was I talking to someone about it the other day? I can't remember. Oh, yes. Because I, uh, I, one of the chaps I'd been filming with, George Potts, I was, and uh, we, I hadn't seen him since we did Arcadia. We were talking about it. I love Tom Stoppard's writing. I mean, I did Jumpers for A Level, and then I, I've just been a sort of massive fan ever since. And you, we were talking about last pod or possibly the pod before, um, was about the nature of writing and how easy it is to learn certain writers. For me. I've only ever done one of his plays which was um, Arcadia in town playing Lady Croom and, and I just couldn't wait to say the lines yeah. it was just I just I just think he's brilliant yes I Pro do I mean I and do. brilliant in in its true sense as well that the clarity of thought yeah is is is, is, is delicious in as much as you just want to eat it yeah I, I, I do I think yeah Arcadia I think well, all of them, you're right, because the language is, it, it just sort of, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's luscious in a way, the language. And you're, you're simultaneously overwhelmed by its cleverness, but also its perception. Yes. And of how much he can communicate yeah, yeah. through his writing. And, and I know that he, we, we, we talked to Patrick a little bit about writer's block and the difficulties of writing. And I think one thing that Stoppard and Patrick share is a kind of, a precision in the yes. way that the words land on the page and Stoppard too famously always says that it takes him a long time to write a play and every time he finishes a play he never believes he'll write another yes and yet the body of work that he has produced in that kind of agonized way writing it all out by fountain pen very slowly yes is it is unbelievably um powerful linguistically yeah, as well yeah. as everything else as well as all the themes he's dealt with it, it yeah the words are just a joy yeah and i i always remember with arcadia so the first night of arcadia we went to that at the national so you did it when it transferred later didn't you in i will it didn't transfer we opened at the duke of york's right. and stayed at the duke of york's with david laveau directing who's directed lots of his yeah and and the the big thing the big revelation for me i think for all of us in that show was that David was very clear that Tom is a European writer yeah. and that the British have claimed him as their own, but actually he is at the end of the day, he's a European writer. And so he's much more, I, I mean, I think David said something rather brilliant and I'm sure I'm going to misquote him, but he said he firmly put the bottom on the British stage and as much as there's a European sensibility, which is far sexier but not in a saucy way in a much more sort of openly fleshy human way yeah. that the Brits don't always do yeah you know we don't do it we might refer to it or insinuate it or flirt with the idea of it but we're not very good at just grabbing it by the bottom yeah. um and I think what and Tom has that he has something very human and open and unguarded 
about his comedy and his writing, you know. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's a really fascinating thing to say because also it's 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 the kind of range of subject that he's been yeah. prepared to cover, you know, politics in uh, Czechoslovakia, in rock and roll and, yeah. and the importance of music to the liberation struggle there, um, you know, the the whole nature of the universe in Arcadia, yeah. uh, philosophy, um, you know, even his unsuccessful plays always are dealing, or, or plays that are deemed less successful now, though possibly will be rediscovered, they're always dealing with something yeah. that is just sort of fascinating and, uh, yeah, I think probably more expansive than, than a lot of British drama, yes. which making vast generalizations is it's is kind of political and social in a different kind of way yeah i mean there are writers now like alistair mcdowell and who are kind of pushing the envelope into sort of sci-fi things um but i think stoppard's philosophical concerns yeah is the other thing that makes him so fascinating well people find him and i've heard this a lot over the years that intimidatingly academic but what i find well, I always say, and I truly believe this, is that he always, for the most part anyway, has someone on stage who doesn't understand that information or who isn't driven by that information. There And therefore, his take on it is that then the information is made less important and less scary. So when we did Arcadia, he felt, with no disrespect to the national production, that they had put too much onus on understanding the mathematics. Yeah. And that when we started to talk about it, he really implored with David not to not to do that, not to make them not that it was a mistake, but it was a it was a road that in retrospect he felt wasn't an important road to take. So we didn't spend any time trying to get to grips with the maths. Right. That's so because he said it's not important. You say it and you and it's there as part of the music of the text, but understanding the maths isn't important to your understanding or enjoyment of the play. And I think with all of that stuff, when he does broach the intellectual. I mean, it's a bit like George in Jumpers, you know, he goes off on all these sort of metaphysical roller coasters, but we don't need to understand the metaphysics. Mm. We just know it's somebody struggling with life and it's yeah. a midlife crisis. And he's, you know, I, he, in the say, there's always a, there's a sentence that he uses. Um, Michael Horden played him originally, yeah. didn't he? The, and Dino it was Dinah Rigg. Rigg. And, yeah. and that, um, he talks about the thinginess of a what. And it's it is an existential crisis, but the music of his speech is the existential crisis, other, other rather than the intellectual detail of what it is that he's talking about. So he's drawing on all these things. Yeah. But he, there's another moment where he talks about Saint Christopher died of fright. So the, the the biblical story of Saint Christopher being shot through the heart is this. I can't remember. I can never remember. But mm. the idea of mathematically, if if every distance is dividable into a smaller distance, then the arrow would never have reached his chest. Therefore, he died of fright, not from the arrow going into his chest. If you talk about life mathematically, but of course he did die from the arrow going to his chest, therefore the math is unimportant. Yeah. So that's the, that's the sort of, that's the way that the, the drama of that thought works. You don't need to understand the maths. Right, you just need yeah, to yeah, understand you just, the drama. Yeah, and it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's comical. And I think that well, that's the I think that's the other mis since we seem to be on this the the other misapprehension about Stoppard is that he is an intellectual playwright yeah and that therefore he's sort of um, a, a chilly playwright yeah 
And yet I think that that just isn't true. No, I mean, I find these plays not. among the most moving plays ever written and full of moments of kind of incredible poignancy and insight into the human heart. Yeah. And there's been a slight critical backlash about Leopoldstadt of saying, is it really a very good play? I think some levels it's his most personal because he yeah. has looked at his own Jewish history and the discovery of that history. And um, but I find I find that I really, more, you know, like a good play sometimes rests with you. So when yes. I first saw it, I've seen it twice. When I first saw it, I thought it was it was marvelous. I mean, I never didn't like it, yeah. but that I wasn't entirely. It start, it's got two acts that sort of explain the situation and then the third act. Yes. Where. Um, so it goes darker, really. It, it starts off with a huge Jewish family and the second act is the arrival of the Nazis in their lives and the third act is the, the historic repercussions of that. And I, when I was watching it, I thought it was great. But what I really find about it is that since I've watched it, it sat with me. Yeah. And I find that with a lot, if, if we're talking about favourite things, one of the, the, the my favourite things about theatre and plays and novels too in fact is that sometimes you read them and you don't really have a, a consciousness of their impact on you yes but then like five years down the road or three weeks down the road somebody will say something and you'll think oh yes yeah, that's yeah. like Leopoldstadt and it's it's like it gives you um, a key to unlock something that you haven't understood previously yeah and I think so much of Stoppard's work has done that for me that it's it's given me a way into things yes and way into understanding things in a, a deeper way and Leopoldstadt really sits with me I find that I often think about it and sorry I'm going all over the place no, no, no. far too much but Adrian Scarborough who I I know yes. you've worked with he was in the other thing I've seen this week which is uh when Winston went to war with Have the wireless, oh. which I saw last night, and which he's playing Churchill. Yes. And as you know, Adrian Scarborough is an actor who can um who 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 can unlock all kinds of things. He's absolutely wonderful. Oh I bet. As Churchill, both um sort of fierce and poignant and awful and um wonderful all yes. at the same time. And you know, performance of great subtlety. But he was of course the pataphilic Pater familias in Leopoldstadt. Yeah. And, you know, when people talk about everything that Jewish culture lost because of the, uh, of the Nazis yeah. and because of the Holocaust, I find I think about him and the richness of his character in that play and really? the longing for assimilation. And I'm, you know, I that is to me what theatre, art, culture gives you, that it just gives you these little ways into things yeah yeah definitely I think you know I, I'm dyslexic and and I'm rubbish at reading um but obsessed with stories and so theatre for me is on my books in that way but when I have read a book you know over the years and I, and I'm not sure the pile of books that I have completely read will get me to the top shelf of most <laughs> bookcases, but I think that, um, you know, certain things, as you say, imagery and moments and the sort of vocalisation of a thought that you yourself haven't been able to unravel 
is is there and then that will stay with you for life. I always think about those moments being a woman, you know, and you, uh, where being a woman becomes m overwhelming, you know, in as much as the things that your body does and, and the changes that you go through and who you are and how you react to things and what people expect of you and all those things that we recalibrate you know and live with and sit with throughout our lives I always think of there was a there was a bit of the old man and the sea where he describes I mean, the sea as a woman and her temperament and her wildness and how you can lose yourself in it and it's the most beautiful thing on earth and yet the most dangerous thing on earth and yeah. I mean he does it absolutely beautifully it's not it's not Thomas Mann who is it Hemingway. Hemingway. Oh, man, sorry. And it's Hemingway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, another great writer, another man who's, uh, another writer whose sentences land beautifully. Yeah, but it's it, it, that image, and, and, and it always allows me out of a dark place of letting myself slightly off the hook yeah. that, that it's something bigger than, the, than an individual woman being a woman. You know, that they, we're, we're complex creatures yeah, in that way. Yeah. Um, and I, I quite like that. that I, you know, and there's another book I read years and years ago, which is Women Who Run With Wolves. Oh, yes. I've oddly just bought that. Have again. you really? Yeah, yeah. I, I had it and then I lost it and now I've bought it again. But, it, but again, it's that thing of somebody describing that bit of yourself that feels um, sort of untethered and at the mercy of the elements in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the... Uh, yeah, yeah no, maybe it's... it takes a lifetime to understand. But yeah, I think it's, as you say, that those ideas return, they, you know, they regurgitate and, and attach themselves to other things yeah. in yeah, important so ways. Much so we've talked about lots of interesting things, I think, this week. But you have, in your wonderful womanhood, yeah. organised an exhibition, which I can't believe you found time to do, given that you've been filming, acting and everything else. But well, tell me about the exhibition that you've organised. It, it was an idea that I had had a while ago. I mean, the full history of it, I could bore you with. If anybody wants a nap, tune in. <laughs> um, but I think that the, I did it, first of all, years and years and years ago. I was at the RSE when the RSE used to have a fringe right. in the summer. And uh, Sam West who was there doing the season with me. Um, I can't even remember what the conversation was. But anyway, we ended up, as part of the show, as part of the Fringe show, putting on an exhibition of artwork by actors in that season in the other place. And there was a really lovely local framing shop and I went around the company and there were brilliant people um, who put stuff on the walls, including Sam and... Um, brilliant uh, actor Julian Curry turned out he was a, a potter and so he had loads of stuff and so many actors do it and last year I was doing a film with Chris Villers who uh, amongst many other brilliant people who also paints and because we had the pleasure of watching lots of male dancers for two weeks uh, doing this uh, the, the big finale of Magic Mike um, the last and dance we got talking <laughs> and one of the things we were talking about was the, was painting and how that became incredibly important during covid and the nature of creative energy and when you don't use it how festering it can be you know you know but actually the nature of our job is the our validation comes when the phone rings and so taking 
ownership of that a little bit, or at least getting back with yourself or sitting quietly with yourself and being able to do stuff on your own terms, particularly during COVID, became really, really important. So it was an idea that I had. I put it to Chris. I then started to approach various people whose work they had put on Instagram or I had heard through other people that they painted. Um, James Fleet and Fenella Woolgar had been on Celebrity Portrait Artist of the Year. They knew various people. And so, so it's had its own momentum. So I'm just going to interrupt you slightly to yeah. say, so it is an exhibition of art created by, by actors. actors. Yes. Yeah, so we and formed its title is? Mama, which is Many Actors Make Art. Yeah. We are raising money for the Theatre Actors Fund, which was a charity established by um, Sam Mendes during COVID uh, to create grant emergency grants for freelance workers and actors across the UK, um, industry workers rather. And since the end of lockdowns, as we know it, it has become a support mechanism for people who are struggling for people who are wanting to get back into the business who haven't been able to balance the wages that they earn from the business with the cost of living crisis and all that so it's still there as a massively important safety net and in fact I think they have been overwhelmed by people asking for help Um, so we're raising money for them but also it's been a great community exercise I personally have found it incredibly moving because I think there's a weird thing around being an actor that you however seriously you take your work and however much you love what you do where we sit in the world depending on the prism that you're looking through it's it's hard to view what you do or or take yourself seriously as an artist in that way we know that we're creative we know that we're not really most of us weren't school shaped so we've come out into the world with you know a lang- our the way that we express ourselves the language that we use is other we're, right. we're observers we you know we tell stories it's you know um and it's a very particular energy it's a leap of faith then to create something that you put on a wall if that's not what you do for a living you know to to say this is who i am i am i also do this i also express myself this way mm. i'm not entirely validated by my last job or my next job or the success of the job or whatever which so much of our identity is tied up with so it's been sort of lovely and moving to ask people to make this leap of faith and now we are 25 artists and we will be at the downstairs at the department store in Brixton uh, on the 11th 12th and 13th of July the the to get tickets they're uh they're available you have to buy them but they're free but you have to organize them through Eventbrite right um and the opening is from six till nine to the public on the 12th so it's very much our first show right I hope that we will have the chance to say the name again so that it's many actors make art at the downstairs at the department store on Ferndale Road, which is a, a Spitnikoff from, uh, to coin a phrase, uh, from uh, Brixton Station and Brixton Tube Station. And it's it's really, really lovely. We've got painters, 
uh, cartoonists, prints, uh, ceramics, textiles, sculpture, uh, and photographs. Got, yeah, and you've got um, artists uh, contributing art, Mark Gattis and yeah, uh, and Tony Sher has um, Gregory Doran, the artistic director of the RSC, is donating one of his late husband's paintings in order to raise money for the charity as well, which is amazing. Really nice. And we everything's have, for sale. Everything, well, most of it is for sale. We have a few pieces that have been donated just to sort of add to the nature of the story, telling the story that actors have always made art. So we've right. got a painting by Noel Coward. We've got drawings, um, a painting by John Lithgow. We have uh, drawings by Tony Curtis and Clive Francis uh, and... Edward D'Souza, those aren't for sale. Right. But most of the other work is for sale, photographs and ceramics and textiles and paintings and cartoons. And and it's just... I think it's a brilliant, brilliant thing it's to have been done. really and, lovely. And it, I, I love the idea that it does cast you in... Um, yeah, yeah, shows actors in a different light and, and has that emphasis on their creativity and, yeah, making work, which is a lovely, yeah. lovely thing to celebrate. It's a it's a big leap for a lot of them, and and I am incredibly grateful that they've stayed with us on the journey, really. So, and I hope that ultimately they will feel good about that. Yes, <laughs> I, well, hope. I hope so. Well, I hope, and I hope um, all of you who are listening to this will go yeah. and see it. Um, also, if you do like this podcast, it would be brilliant if you could click subscribe on whatever platform you are listening to it on so that you're always informed of the next episode absolutely and uh, so that we gather followers and um uh, we do hear from you and it is lovely to know that a lot of you are liking yeah what we do because we like what we do yeah <laughs> and so probably that's enough for this week yeah it's more it, it's again it's the community isn't it it's it's you know we're regrowing still and and so this is our bit our bit of uh Regrowing. Our bit of regrowing. Yeah. So it's goodbye from me, uh, Nancy Carroll, the actress. And goodbye from me, Sarah Crompton, the critic.